Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Goodness gracious, it is time for Dark Poutine once again. And amazingly, I have Matthew Hello. here with me. And we have a special guest in the studio this week, Steve. <laughs> he's, he's here. He is currently sniffing around my feet. Oh. I don't know what's going <laughs> <Poor> on. <dog. laughs> but uh, But welcome, Steve. So you had some excitement yesterday at your place. Yeah, I'm going to try not to cough through this entire episode. Yeah, so Matthew, there was a fire in your building. And uh, Justin, Steve, and I made our way down 40 floors. And on about the 10th floor, um, the fire escape stairwell yeah, f almost completely filled with black smoke. Yeah, but you're, you're okay, both of you and uh, your yeah. doggy are okay. Yeah, we're okay. It was, it was distressing though. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we're back in, the, back in the place, no damage to our place. So. Awesome. I'm so glad that everybody is okay. Yeah. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Now with smoked flavor. Mmm, smoky. <laughs> and Steve is licking my foot. <laughs> On the evening of June 29th to the early morning of June 30th, 2002, Lisa Marie Young, a 21-year-old Indigenous woman, was celebrating with friends in her hometown of Nanaimo, British Columbia. It was not only Canada Day long weekend, but also her friend Dallas's birthday. The group went to several nightclubs and then attended a pair of house parties outside the city. Lisa left the party with a man the group had just met that evening. There were several frantic text messages from Lisa shortly after her departure, indicating she was afraid. Lisa Marie Young has not been seen or heard from since. The man she was seen leaving the party with was later identified as local 27-year-old man named Christopher William Adair. Adair now refuses to speak to police and has left the country. Nanaimo RCMP presume Lisa has been murdered, and her remains have never been found. In the days before the recording of this podcast, almost 20 years later, an anonymous donor contacted advocates for Lisa offering a $50,000 reward to help locate her remains. 
It's time to bring Lisa home. Someone knows where she is. Maybe you can help. You are listening to Dark Poutine episode 206, MMIW, Nanaimo Girl Gone, Lisa Marie Young. Much of the information that follows about Lisa Marie Young's life prior to her disappearance comes from interviews given by family and friends to the Native Women's Association of Canada website. Later on in the show, we will hear from Cindy Hall, a former acquaintance of Lisa's and an advocate in the search for the missing young woman. Don Young and his wife Joanne, born Martin, a member of the Klaquat First Nation, welcomed their daughter Lisa Marie into the world on May 5th, 1981, in Nanaimo, British Columbia. Joanne was just 18 when Lisa was born, but she and Don were over the moon with their firstborn. Joanne later spoke about wanting to take care of herself while pregnant with Lisa. She walked lots and ate a vegetarian diet, which, which Lisa would later adopt as a youngster, and she remained vegetarian until the day she vanished. Joanne fondly recalled being pregnant with Lisa. She didn't gain a lot of weight with Lisa and barely showed she was expecting. Quote, the pregnancy was really nice, she said. I knew the baby was going to be a girl because she hardly ever kicked, end quote. Lisa's maternal grandmother, Cecilia, loved Lisa too, the second grandchild for she and her husband. Quote, she was a beautiful little angel, Cecilia said. She just looked like her mother, end quote. From the story about Lisa Marie Young on the Native Women's Association of Canada website, quote, Remembering her own childhood, Cecilia made sure her grandchildren were loved and cared for. Both Cecilia and Joanne's father attended Kakawas Residential School on Mears Island. Cecilia was nine years old when the Indian agent took her to the school. It was really bad, scary, lonely, she says simply. She attended the school for seven years. Thankfully, Cecilia's time at residential school did not affect her experience as a mother. Cecilia loved being a mother, loved every minute of it. She treasured her children and later her grandchildren, end quote. So, Mike, a lot of people might not know what Indian residential schools are. Yeah. Or the 60s scoop. Our Canadian listeners will, but how, yeah. many, how many countries are we in? 213. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, so people in Yugoslavia might not, might know, not know what a residential school was. Right, so my description of it is... Um, it's really like I thought of like how I should say what this is. There's a mass kidnapping of First Nations children per per perpetrated by the Canadian government in cahoots with the Catholic Church. Wait, hold on. Yeah. United Church as well. And United Church. Mm -hmm. And um, ignored by the people of Canada. Well, right. that's that's putting a, a simpler sort of spit. There's a very I, simplified explanation I, I, of it. I'm trying to try to make it easy here. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's there's a lot more to it than that. But at the same time, yeah, you're pretty much right. I mean, it was I guess you could use the word cultural genocide. I one of the point, mm -hmm. one of the points was to train, you know, train the the Indian out of the children. Right. right? Yeah. Which is just horrible. It was about assimilation. Assimilation that, and yeah. also a lot of white folks were so imagine your kid is like taken away mm -hmm. and then adopted by somebody else. Yeah. Horrible. It is horrible. I do want to do a full episode on residential schools and explain it in a way that's not so simplistic, but <laughs> um 
when we do it, we'll have people who have been to residential schools or people who had family who were in residential schools to talk about the impact of it. Because I think that's what really needs to be discussed is briefly talk about the fact that it happened, mm. how it happened, but what has the impact been of residential schools on the community and on uh, the culture? Yeah, I mean, I mean, these schools, the, the final ones didn't close until the 90s. That's right. It's a massive conversation that we will get into in another episode. Lisa's early days were spent with her mom and dad in a two-bedroom apartment in Nanaimo. Even though the couple had fully decked out the second bedroom for their new arrival, Joanne felt more comfortable with infant Lisa laying on her chest in the king-size bed she shared with Don, either all night or for a pleasant afternoon nap. Lisa's family remembers her as an active, friendly, and outgoing baby. Lisa's mom, Joanne, described Lisa as a strong and determined girl from almost the beginning. Lisa was crawling by the time she was five months old and was walking by seven months. Cecilia remembered her granddaughter as gentle, caring, and appreciative, not demanding at all. In one particular example, Cecilia recalled Lisa opening Christmas gifts as a toddler. Rather than just ripping the wrapping paper from her presents like most other kids, Lisa took her time, carefully unwrapping, being mindful not to tear the paper. If Lisa visited her grandmother, also unlike the other kids, she wouldn't beg for gifts while on shopping trips. But, like any good grandma, Cecilia always wanted Lisa to have something nice for herself, even if she wasn't asking. It was her honest care for other people and animals that led Lisa to becoming a vegetarian when she was a very young girl. From the Native Women's Association of Canada website, quote, From the time she was small, Lisa was a real girly girl. She favored pretty clothing, pink headbands, and painted nails. When she got her first bike at four years old, it was a pink one with streamers on the handlebars. She loved beadwork and glitter, anything that sparkled. As a toddler, Lisa would walk around with cute little bags of beadwork and sparkly glitter pins. And as she grew, so did her creative nature. She was always making or beating something. End quote. Lisa's creativity extended to the treatment of her younger brothers, Brian and Robbie. Although she was a loving and protective big sister to them, sometimes, like big sisters can be, she was bossy. She also used to play dress-up with her little brothers. She used to dress them up like little girls, giggled Joanne. They didn't really like it, but they did it. It was cute, end quote. As she grew, so did Lisa's creativity. She loved music and art. She enjoyed writing and painted using watercolors. But she was no homebody. She was active, too. She played basketball and liked other fitness-related activities. Volunteering was another thing that gave Lisa purpose. At only 12, she volunteered as a school crossing guard. Later on, she was a camp counselor at the Nanaimo Department of Parks and Recreation and Culture. In high school, Lisa's first real job was at a local McDonald's restaurant, like many other teens. I, I really have an affinity for creative souls like Lisa. Me too. Yeah. yeah. So many of my friends are in the creative industries. I think it's, mm -hmm. you know, I, I have no talent, so maybe I live vicariously. But no, she's, no, you're, you're creative. She sounds person. like the type of person I want to get along with. Yeah, me yeah. too. Yeah. Um, and, and I love that she was so into um, expressing herself. That's yeah. pretty cool. That is. Even though she was serious about school and work, she was also very active socially. 
Lisa had a number of longtime friends. Many of those friends saw Lisa, strong as she was, as a confidant and support. She wanted the best for everyone, to be a positive influence in people's lives. From the Native Women's Association of Canada website, quote, Lisa was forever busy, off meeting friends for coffee on the waterfront, water skiing, or dancing. She also loved to rollerblade and walk at Swialana Lagoon. It was her favorite place in Nanaimo. But even with so much going on in her life, Lisa always made time for her brothers. She was never too busy to take them out for lunch or to bother them about finishing their homework, end quote. After high school, Lisa worked a number of jobs around Nanaimo, including a short stint tending bar. Early in the summer of 2002, she had applied for a gig at a local call center and had gotten a job and wanted to save money to go back to school to become a radio announcer. She was set to start her new job on July 2nd, just after the Canada Day long weekend. She was also getting ready to move out of the apartment that she'd been sharing with a roommate into a place of her own. She was moving on July 1st. Uh, that must hit you, Mike. I mean, you, you understand her dream. You wanted to do radio for a long time. Um, I did. Uh, I, I noticed that when uh, I was researching this that, oh, well, that's, that's kind of cool. We had similar aspirations. Mm. And uh, you mentioned earlier that she was creative and expressive and those kind of things. I kind of was too. Yeah. Yeah. I was one of those. I was uh, a kid a lot like her mm. when I was growing up. I always wanted to uh, go the extra mile for like a Halloween costume <laughs> or something like that. I was always just that guy, yeah. just like, I need to do this. Yeah, I need to show great. it's going to be fun. I, I need to color in my Star Wars coloring book uh, with all the crayons, not just a red and a green. So sweet. That last weekend that Lisa's family had her was shaping up to be a busy one. This is why her dad, Don, was surprised when Lisa said she was going out at 11 p.m. on the evening of the 29th. With so much to do in such a short time, Don didn't see it wise to be heading out to a party so late, especially with Lisa's move set to happen so soon. Lisa was undeterred. She didn't want to miss her pal Dallas Holly's 21st birthday party. She was a night owl anyway, and thought she'd be home in plenty of time to rest up and get ready for her move. The party started for the trio of friends at 241 Skinner Street, the nightclub in which Lisa had worked tending bar. It was then called the Jungle Club. It's since been renamed twice, becoming Club 241, and it's now called the Evolve Nightclub, calling itself Nanaimo's premier nightclub. It being Canada Day, many of Nanaimo's young adults were out partying that night. Lisa was comfortable in the club, arriving at around midnight. It was a regular haunt for her and her friends. Lisa felt pretty safe there. She and her two buddies drank and danced there until the bar closed, heading out into the parking lot between 2.15 and 2.30 a.m. In the parking lot, the friends chatted about what to do next. There were many after-parties going on that weekend, as there were on most summer nights when the bars closed. The group was approached by a young man, 27-year-old Christopher William Adair. Although Adair was a stranger to them, he seemed nice enough. Adair chatted with them a while, eventually offering them a ride to a house party in the late 1980s model Burgundy Jaguar that he'd been driving. The group was impressed with Adair's ride and decided to go with him. They hopped into the Jag and went to a home in the Harewood area, just a five-minute drive away. 
young adult life do you remember can you remember that far uh, back? barely you know, because i was sort of out of my yeah, mind at that time it's always you know people her age mm -hmm. always super social like i you know it was it was always like what party are we going to or you know what what are we going to do hanging out yeah life is a going concern yeah yeah absolutely. and and going from one place to another after the bars closed was not unusual for me either. Oh, no. no, totally normal. Yeah. It's like, okay, the bars closed. We can't buy drinks We're anymore. Young. What's next, right? <laughs> we, can't, we can't buy drinks anymore. Let's go to somebody else's house to, yeah, to get more. <laughs> absolutely. The group stayed only a short time at the first house until around 3 a.m. before they were off in the Jaguar again. This time to a second house party seven minutes further away in the Westwood Lake area on the outskirts of Nanaimo. Sometime soon after arriving at the second party, sources say that between 3.30 and 4, Lisa began to express that she'd become hungry. As she was vegetarian, there were no options that suited her diet in the home. Christopher William Adair offered to take Lisa to get a bite to eat at a local late-night sandwich shop, and the pair left the party in the Red Jaguar. That was the last time Lisa was seen by her friends. At around 4.30 a.m., Lisa texted Dallas Hulley, the birthday boy. She let Dallas know that she was uncomfortable and that Christopher Adair had taken her to another home where she was feeling uncomfortable and afraid. The last text she sent to Dallas is the last known communication from Lisa Marie Young, According to some news outlets, the content of that text was, Come get me. They won't let me leave. Dallas later told Czech News that Lisa had said more in those texts. He said that other texts read, quote, Dallas, I don't know what's going on. This guy won't bring me back. We're sitting in a driveway on Bowen Road, and he won't bring me back. I'm bored. I'm getting pissed off, end quote. But Dallas isn't around to talk about those final texts. He died on March 25, 2018. While walking along the highway with a female friend at 1 a.m., he stepped into the northbound lane to retrieve something he'd dropped, only to be struck by a car. Dallas was pronounced dead at 6.15 a.m. the same day. Although the 62-year-old female driver was driving at least 10 kilometers under the speed limit, she was unable to avoid him due to a lack of reflective clothing. Dallas was 38 years old. When Dawn and Joanne didn't hear from Lisa in the morning after she'd gone out partying, they called Lisa's cell phone. No one answered. But the young woman's parents told themselves that their eldest daughter was probably just getting ready for her move on her own that day. Lisa's fierce sense of independence was a quality that her folks were always proud of her for having. However, when Lisa's former roommate came calling, the alarm bells went off. The roommate was there looking for Lisa, who still had a bunch of stuff at her old place that needed to be moved, but she hadn't shown up to shift it. Joanne went with the roommate back to Lisa's apartment and found her little black book of contacts. Joanne spent the rest of the day calling every single contact in the book. No one had seen or heard from Lisa that day. God, imagine the panic setting in at this point. Yeah, totally. Like, uh, you're a regular young person and all of a sudden you're not around. You know, so like family it's, and friends. God. Yeah. Unusual. Of course, the next step was to call police. And Don and Joanne did just that. But as we've heard so many times before, they were given the runaround. Joanne told Native Women's Association of Canada website that the RCMP officer who took her call 
didn't seem overly concerned upon hearing Lisa's age and description. He said, She's only been missing a short time, and that I'd have to check back in 48 hours. That old chestnut. I, I don't understand this. So, according to one of the TV shows I watch, mm -hmm. the first 48 hours are crucial to an investigation. Absolutely they are. So, everyone knows this. So, you, you know, you try to jump on it before the trail goes cold. So, mm -hmm. this seems really counterintuitive to me. Yeah. And as we'll see, it wasn't just the first 48 hours that uh, were lacking in this particular case as far as investigation goes. To Joanne and Don, waiting didn't make sense. This was not like Lisa. She didn't just disappear. Something was definitely amiss. Joanne started calling family all over the island, and before long, according to the Native Women's Association of Canada website, quote, a whole group of family members were searching up and down the coast, from Coombs to Tofino, end quote. Many of Lisa's friends went out searching for her as well, but there was no sign of the pretty 21-year-old. A cop did show up that night. He took one of the family's photos of Lisa and wrote down some information. Before he left, he told the couple that he was off for the next four days and that he'd speak to him on Friday when he was back in the detachment. Joanne later said the cop seemed irritated, by the chore that he'd been tasked with. And we'll take a break right here. And we're back. Matthew, what are your thoughts? Okay, I'm going to say it. Yep. And some dick will give us a one-star rating, one-star rating and call us woke for saying it. Yeah. However, I'm going to proudly take that one-star rating, and I think you'll happily take a one-star no, rating. No, I won't, but anyway. <laughs> Here it is. If this had been a white girl, the police officer would not have acted like that. Full stop. Yep. We'll, we'll see later on how that plays into okay. things, but okay. it's, it's pretty interesting uh, how her family even had to, felt they had to react in this regard. So sad. Rather than wait for police, Joanne and Don's next step was to get in touch with the press. A local reporter came by right away. A day later, the news about Lisa's disappearance blew up. Only a few days after that, probably with all the public attention that the case was getting, Lisa's parents were told that the RCMP's serious crime unit was now involved in the search for Lisa. Dallas Hulley told Czech News that he was frustrated in the days after the news of Lisa's disappearance hit the airwaves. He said, quote, I want to bash my knuckles against the cement. I don't know what to do. What a waste. What has Nanaimo come to when stuff like this can happen? End quote. RCMP created a Crime Stoppers video asking for witnesses who'd seen the Red Jaguar between 2 a.m. and 3 p.m. on July 1st, 2002, a full day after Lisa had vanished. They'd gotten the dates wrong in the video, which is still online and hasn't been corrected. The first official ground search for Lisa Marie Young did not happen until September, a full two months after Lisa vanished. In the meantime, a full 30 days after Lisa disappeared, cops had spoken with Christopher William Adair, the driver of the Red Jaguar. It's unclear what Adair said specifically to police. He is considered by police a person of interest in the case, according to a lot of different newspaper articles. But, he is not considered a suspect. Chris Adair had already had encounters with the legal system at the time of Lisa's disappearance and has had other run-ins since as well. 
All the charges related to that individual are easily discoverable by a simple search on the justice.gov.bc.ca website, if you're curious about what those are, and we'll include a link later. Singer Allison Crow, who'd gone to school with Lisa and later wrote a song for her classmate called Lisa's Song, wrote on her website, quote, The car in which Lisa was taken from her friends was owned by Christopher William Adair's grandmother, Geraldine Lorna Adair, a prominent member of the business community in Qualicum Beach, a Vancouver Island community not far from Nanaimo, subsequently sold the Jaguar and threatened to sue over talk that could implicate her grandson in the disappearance. Chris Adair's grandfather, William Bill Kurtz, was a longtime island politician and held the position of alderman, 1972 to 75, and mayor, 1976 to 81, of nearby Parksville, B.C., Kurtz passed away on June 12, 2003, one year after Lisa's death. Jerry Adair passed on June 9, 2011. Police did do a forensic exam of the car before it was sold, but have not indicated what they found in the car, if anything at all. There are numerous unsubstantiated rumors involving organized crime in Nanaimo in Lisa's disappearance. Web searches and the links included in our show notes will expand upon those. Police have given polygraph to one man, who some believe is responsible for the crime, but he passed. The rumors about that individual's involvement still persist. Friends, family, and other members of the community have taken part in annual walks and candlelight vigils for Lisa Marie Young, often close to the anniversary of her disappearance. Joanne Young told the Hashiltha Indigenous newspaper that, quote, in the early days of the investigation, Joanne made a conscious effort to avoid appearing in front of cameras. You couldn't tell by looking at her that she was First Nations, and I didn't want people to know that and judge her, to discriminate against her because of that, Joanne explained. It was never about me. We wanted the message to be that she's still missing and that we need closure, she continued. Joanne Young, 54, died after a long illness in 2017, still not knowing what had happened to her little girl. Right up to her last days, she would have wanted to know. That's so sad. Mm -hmm. In late June of 2021, Nanaimo RCMP officers, including Corporal Marcus Muntner, the lead investigator in the Lisa Marie Young case, held a press conference to provide updates into the progress of the investigation. Muntner started off saying that the case was active and ongoing almost 19 years later, he also indicated that more than 15,000 pages of documentation had been gathered during the investigation. He said that over the past year, thanks to information that came to police attention, numerous searches to find Lisa had been undertaken and that more searches were planned for the future. He said that people who had not felt comfortable prior to that point had come forward with what he believes is credible information. Muntner also stated that he knows there are still others yet afraid to come forward, but hopes that they can find it within themselves to come forward with anything that might help. Constable Haley Pinfold also spoke. Constable Pinfold stated that the RCMP are approaching the investigation with an open mind and are reviewing every bit of information that comes in, as well as reviewing historical information. We're just asking that people come talk to us because we're here to listen to everybody no matter what their circumstances now or in the past. We just want to hear what people have to say, Constable Pinfold said. RCMP have indicated that Lisa Marie Young's disappearance is now being investigated as a homicide. 
as thanks to that new information, they believe strongly that Lisa is deceased due to foul play. To date, there have been no arrests made in connection to Young's disappearance. As I mentioned in the introduction to this case, very recently, an anonymous donor has come forward offering $50,000 as a reward to locate Lisa's remains, to hopefully bring her home to her family where she belongs. Seeing this new development, I reached out to Cindy Hall, a friend of Lisa's family who runs the Lisa Marie Young Facebook group. She kindly agreed to come and have a bit of a conversation with me about Lisa's case, the new developments, and how we can help bring Lisa home. Here's the interview. Thank you for coming on Dark Poutine. You and I have been talking about this online for a long time, and I feel like now is the perfect time to be talking about this stuff. Um, Thank you for having me. And yes, we have been talking for a while. And um, I agree with you. I think this is the right time to do the interview. How do you know Lisa Marie Young and what's your connection to her? I'm So uh, me and Lisa are the same age. Um, I was born in March, so I'm a few months older than her. We both would have been turning, well, Lisa would have been turning 41 this year. Lisa and I met when my best friend, Carol Ann, became Lisa's foster sister when we were all about 16 years old. And then um, I wasn't close to Lisa, but we would hang out, like when I would go to Carol Ann's. And then when Lisa went missing, she was living with my sister-in-law, Tara. So I've been with my husband for 23 years. Mm -hmm. So I've known Tara. We've all known each other since we were teenagers. Oh, okay. Wow. So yeah. it's, a, it's a really long time. Yeah. What prompted you to get involved in Lisa's case the way that you have? Well, um, I always thought of Lisa over the years. Um, I'm embarrassed to say, but I didn't take part in a lot in advocating for Lisa. And then when Lisa's mom, Joanne, died, um, it just changed something in me. And I wanted to help keep Lisa's memory alive in Nanaimo. Mm-hmm. And it just made me really think about like how Joanne died without answers. So I asked um, Lisa's sister, Carol Ann, if she thought it was a good idea if I offer to do a hold a march on like around June 30th, but for June 30th. And she thought so. So then I connected with Lisa's aunt, Carol Frank, and then just started advocating from there. It's become something a lot bigger than just a walk. You run a Facebook group as well that's really really active and obviously because you you keep it active and a lot of people want to remember lisa has it become something bigger than you thought it would be at first yes way bigger so when i started advocating for her i just did like mainly posts online and not a lot and then we did her missing posters and my best friend bria made the first missing poster i used to use for lisa and then after that, I learned how to make them on my own. And then we were just putting, I was just putting them up around Nanaimo. And people kept on tearing them down in certain areas. So Lisa's sister, Carol Ann, thought of doing our Lisa cards. Mm-hmm. And then we started doing those. And those became a bit more popular. Or it was just around like time Island Crime came out. But Island Crime kind of made everything go forward. Like yep. it just... I don't know how to explain. It just kind of changed the whole momentum, like everything. It just made everything go kind of forward and fast. And it, um, the more I learned about Lisa, the more it, it 
like I was inspired to do something and I'm a really passionate person and like once I get something stuck in my head it like it's there <laughs> that's a good thing the world needs more people like that <laughs> yeah except it's like pretty overbearing to some people <laughs> but yeah Tell us a little bit more about Lisa. You, you say you've learned a lot about her, uh, probably more than when you mm-hmm. knew her. And yeah. all of the stuff that I've learned, obviously, was sources online. So as somebody who knew her, tell us about her a little bit. So I wasn't close to her, like I say, but we would have spent a lot of time together. And it was a long time ago, so I don't remember everything clearly. But I just remember every time I was around Lisa, she was just happy, friendly. Like, we're just typical young teenagers. And she treated everyone like nice and respectful um she seemed more grown up than us in a way just like how she dressed and how she carried herself um I just always remember her smiling and I don't remember any like negative memory it's hard to go back because I've heard so much about her and it's been so many years I'm 41 almost but yeah, yeah like I have no negative memories every time I saw her even when she lived with Tara like it was a positive experience and I always remember she always dressed nice. <laughs> that really stuck out. <laughs> That's what I've learned about her, too. Like, she was really into her appearance. Oh, yeah. One of the articles I read said that she really liked makeup and... and, and... Oh, yeah. Jewelry and, like, her clothes. I will never forget her room. I was, like, a little jealous. She um, just had so much clothes. <laughs> and she used to dress Caroline up. Like, she would hide Caroline's clothes sometimes, and then Caroline would have to wear what Lisa wanted her to. So, she, they were like jokesters, the three girls in the house. But yeah, those are my memories. Like, just normal, typical, happy teenager girl stuff. You mentioned you folks were putting up posters around. People were taking them down. People will do that for one reason or another. I'm not sure what's in people's brains when they do those kind of things. But as a result, you made these things you said you called them Lisa cards. Can you tell us a little bit more about those? Yeah. Okay, so they're the size of business cards, and we order them from Vistaprint. And we have Lisa's photo on one side with, um, I forgot all the details, but just information about Lisa. And to say contact in the NAMA RCMP if you have info. And then we ask to join her Facebook group, Lisa Marie Young. And then on the other side, we have Christopher Will- William Adair's photo. And Christopher William Adair, we've talked about in the podcast, he's the guy who is a person of interest in the case and the last person apparently to see Lisa alive. He was the guy driving that red Jaguar. Whatever became of that guy? So we actually didn't know for quite a few years, but then I think it was in October of last year, we actually found out where he is and he's actually residing in Turkey. And he had his own business there. So he just continued on with life. What was he doing for a business? Um, he will help residents get like their Turkish permit and help them with, he helps expats get their Turkish permit. And he would also help expats with like other legal stuff they needed help with. We have tried to reach out to the, I shouldn't say Laura, we tried to reach out to the company, but no one responds. He is definitely the person who was driving the Jaguar that night. Is that correct? So, Marcus, he's the lead investigator in Lisa's file. Mm-hmm. In Laura's podcast, she asks him, and in a roundabout way, he does admit that it's Chris Adair, 
and he does call him a person of interest, but just not in a direct way. Right. And um, Chris Adair has actually admitted that he is the driver, and some of his family members, one in particular, has come to Lisa's group and admit that Chris is the driver. I was sending a person messages, and they were sending my messages to Chris, and then what he said back, they sent to me. Okay. So he didn't deny any of this. He actually said his phone number hasn't changed in 20 years, and he's easy to get a hold of. Okay, so... But he had me blocked on social media before I found him. Same with Laura Palmer. Laura Palmer is the host of Island Crime. Yeah, he blocked us before we found him. I don't get into accusation on the show. Like, that's just... That's just kind of not something we do. But um, at the same time, it's interesting that he doesn't talk to police about this. Like, or did he ever? I don't, I don't know. Like, there's no real news. So police, yes. Publicly, never. Okay. He has only addressed this in private messages. He still won't speak to Marcus. And I've given him Marcus's number a lot through people. And Chris Adair follows Lisa's Facebook group. And we always post it, so he knows. He won't talk to Marcus Muttner, who is the current lead on the investigation, the RCMP officer. Yeah, I found a bit on, it was the truecrimefiles.com, where um, the quote is, Lisa's mother, Joanne, told the media that she had the opportunity to speak to Adair during this interrogation. And she said that uh, when she asked where her daughter was, he replied, I can't, I'm sorry, I don't mean to disrespect your family, and then his voice trailed off. Did that conversation really happen? Yes, and years ago, Joanne told me herself, and in the um, podcast Island Crime, Laura mm-hmm. actually asks Marcus if that happened, and he says yes. Okay. The police also made Joanne hug Chris, and that is 100% true. That came from Joanne, too. So the police had Joanne hug Christopher Adair during a meeting between the two while he was being interviewed. Um, so after they got the police got Joanne to talk to him, they asked her to hug him at the end, and she did. And she's told people that was like one of the worst things she's ever had to do. I can see why they would do that, because, you know, it might prompt him to maybe start talking to... Yeah, but only if you have feelings. So if you're a psychopath, that's going to be nothing. Yeah. And yeah, they made her bring like Lisa's belongings too. Joanne told me years ago, she's told um, family... She's told her friends, so yeah. Lisa's belongings were in the room when uh, the police were talking to Chris. Yes, Joanne brought, I forgot what items she brought, but she brought items of Lisa. And she Mm. did see on the whiteboard the words murder, rape, accident, and everything else that was reported. Mm -hmm. And I was told that by Joanne. Now, I've watched Mindhunter and and those kind of things, so I kind of see that that was perhaps a tactic by the RCMP to get him to talk. Yeah, they just didn't realize, like, if he just met Lisa, so there's no attachment mm-hmm. there. So I understand why they did I don't get the hug, because yeah. I think if Joanne was an Indigenous, I don't think they would have asked a non-Indigenous mom to get that. I understand that they were trying to get feelings from them. So you're Indigenous yourself, correct? Yeah, I'm, um, my mom's Indigenous and my dad's Caucasian, so I'm Haida Klinket. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I'm a mix. 
Yeah, so that that's probably a big reason why, too, that you feel a connection to this case uh, and probably a lot of the other uh, murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls and Two-Spirit. Um, hugely, because that can be me. And statistically, as an Indigenous woman, I have a higher chance of harm coming to me. And we are make up a smaller percent of the population. Yeah, like so much violence happens against us, and that is huge. And that really drives me to advocate for Lisa. And when I see photos of Lisa when she was young, I see myself in them. What's your dog's name? You're hearing Riley. (laughs) And, um, yeah, he's a chihuahua mix. And he does this um, when he's a little stressed. And he hasn't done it all day till I got on the phone, and I'm trying to scratch under his chin. (laughs) He probably knows that mom is emotional right now, so that's... Yeah. Yeah, he's like... And there are two of them are feral dogs, so they pick up on your emotions. Like, if you look mm-hmm. unhappy, they get scared and stressed. So, <laughs> like, trying to pet them to stop them. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, but, yeah, that's his little noise. <laughs> I call him a pig. <laughs> so, you've talked about it on other shows, what uh, you think might have happened to Lisa. And this is just all speculation. Uh, There's no, there's no actual proof. And obviously you can't say some of the things that you know, because there are certain things that the RCMP hold back and don't tell anybody, but then there's other things that for legal reasons you can't talk about. So what is it that you think in a general way uh, happened to Lisa? Um, So this is, just my thinking like we said there's no evidence to back it up I just have this thought from what I've been told and what I have learned about what might have happened that night um I think Lisa was at the party Chris Adair said he would go take her for food because she was a vegetarian Mm -hmm. and then she went with them I do think they went to I don't know how many other places and then um, I think they ended up at 827 Nanaimo Lakes Road. That's the place that the police searched and it made the news. Okay. And I think other bad people were there. I think they did make a um, snuff film of Lisa. I think it was supposed to be a mock snuff film. I think they raped, tortured, and murdered her. Mm. I think they buried her on the property. And then I think they moved her again. Ah, so that's why they weren't able to find her when they searched there. And they searched with a a cadaver dog, correct? Luca. So Luca is a three-year-old general duty service dog. Mm -hmm. And um, he's with the RCMP. And he's the only one that his specialty is human remains detection. So Luca has been part of the search for Lisa. They also use ground penetrating radar. Mm-hmm. And then they would also have like a team who knows how to search and look for like soil disturbance and evidence. So it's quite a large search when they do it. It's just not a few cops. Marcus and team didn't want us to go when they were searching. But um, I was going to 827 the property before it was searched to like look at it they thought it would be too stressful on all the searchers if um we went and waited and even if they found anything we couldn't see it yeah because they will only tell us um if they find lisa during the searches we don't know if they ever find any other evidence 
And we also don't know all the places they search. We only know some places, like say if we um, were told a place and then we put them in connection with the police and say they searched it, then we would know about it. But if we have no idea it's going to happen, Marcus usually doesn't fill us in. And that's mm-hmm. just to protect the integrity of the file. Yeah, which makes sense to me totally. It because, does, uh, yeah. If they if they find something and somebody's spoiled it, uh, that yeah. evidence is no good. Once, uh, no. hopefully, somebody is brought to trial for what happened to Lisa. Exactly. So, yeah. But no, it's pretty interesting how they search and um, a lot of work goes into it. And they dine quite a few. Have so have you heard about searches like uh, you mention a, a property to them and they'll say we've already searched there? So certain properties they will confirm and some won't. Your experience with Corporal Muntner has been a positive one. It sounds like. Um yes. So it took us a bit to get a hold of the police when I first started advocating, and then once we connected with Marcus and um me Caroline. And Carol Frank will meet with Marcus, um, and he'll meet with us anytime we ask him. Um, we can call him anytime. He calls us right back. He'll email. He emails back right away. So communication is great. He does have a lot of other active homicide files because last year in the Nanaimo got five new ones. Oh, and wow. I believe the serious crime unit have a new file this year, the shooting on the res. Mm-hmm. So um, he has a lot of active files. But he'll always um, take witnesses' statements. He'll travel to take statements still. If somebody tells them something that leads them to they want to search a place right away, they will. But right now, they haven't been doing active searches for Lisa because of all the active homicide files. Yeah, there's only seven members of the serious crime unit. And I was mm-hmm. told by Staff Sergeant Ron Polka, I think he's the head of, is it the E Division? Yeah. Um, he said that's actually good amount of people. Uh, so it's a so, at, at this point it's a resource issue that it's a resource issue. Yeah, that was frustrating. Recently, um, somebody, an anonymous donor, I think they're from the U.S., came forward offering a fifty thousand dollar reward for anybody who helps to find Lisa's remains. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? now I've been in talks with the donor and they are American and they reached out to me because they heard of Lisa before but then they listened to Island Crime and really learned about Lisa and they just cared a lot they reached out to me and wanted to help and then they asked if we have a reward and I told them that we didn't and then they offered the money yeah so um we're still working on it. So the money is there. Like if someone comes forward right this minute and says, Lisa's body's here in the police binder, we can get them the money right away. What we're working on is we're, because the donor still has the money, but we want to put it in something like a trust where people can add to it. Mm-hmm. We're just trying to figure out all the details. But the money is I- there. It's just... You have I'm, to put it in, I guess, a trust. <laughs> okay. I was going to suggest that. I was... That's how I'm guessing. Yeah. Because we all didn't know how to do it, even Marcus. Mm-hmm. And um, the donor has a lawyer looking to it in America. So, yeah. Like, the money's there. It's just we're trying to, if no one claims it right away, we're going to have to put it somewhere. Yeah. So, we want to put it in a trust. And then we'll do it, like, 
so I guess we can add on to it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot. But yeah, we have the money. We just got to figure it all out. People are going to hear about this massive donation and yeah. they're going to want to add to it. Like I've even been thinking, hey, I, I, I wonder if I should do that too. But Oh yeah, so many people have offered to add to it for years. And to be honest, I wasn't quite on board with the reward. We've talked about it before mm-hmm. because they haven't worked in Canada that I know of. And I felt really weird about having to offer someone money for a body. Yeah. <laughs> and um, But now I feel so different. I feel it could make a difference. And mm-hmm. I would do anything to bring Lisa home. And maybe that person's just so scared and this is what they need. Yep. Because so. I get a sense that uh, there's a lot more going on than just one individual. And... Uh, the rumors that I hear, I mean, obviously yeah. I can read and I'm looking on the internet and and yeah. I'm seeing that there might be some interesting folks who could or could not be involved in this situation that might be dangerous as well. So um, if anybody does know, of course they'd be afraid. But I noticed in the June press conference that Corporal Muntner and Constable Pinfeld held that they mentioned that other people have come forward lately. And these are people who they feel yeah. were scared to come forward for years. And for some mm-hmm. reason or another, things have changed. Um, do you know anything about what uh, people have brought forward? Can you talk about any of that or no? I don't know a lot, but sometimes people reach out to me that aren't totally comfortable talking to the police and they want to talk about how it happens. Marcus has never totally told us what's been told. Yeah. But because he can't. And um, we actually, I ask him some things, but like, I don't ask him as much as I could, I guess. Because at the same time, like when I do interviews, I'm already worried about saying stuff. So I feel if I get too much info, I'll be like, yeah. <laughs> diarrhea of the mouth. <laughs> well, you know what? Like, <laughs> it's hard. Information is power too on both sides. Yeah. So uh, the, the RCMP definitely will want to keep things secret if they can. Yeah, they're very secretive, I found out. Over the years, some people have found that that's, that may not always be the best thing and that they use that as an excuse. But um, do you feel like they're really working on this? Yes. So um, before I advocate, I can't speak for if they were, but in my personal opinion, I don't think Lisa's file was being as actively worked as it is now. Since Marcus came to the serious crime unit and we started talking to him, we know for a fact he follows up on all leads that like, we point his way or he tells us about. Mm-hmm. Or I talk to people who say, yes, he connected with me right away. Mm-hmm. Um, he's conducted searches. When he talks to us, you can tell he cares about Lisa. He's committed to finding her. Like, he makes it known that she's important. He also has her photo on his, like, little notebook he has. But, yeah, he seems pretty committed. I like Marcus and Haley's super nice. They're, like, very professional, smart cops. I like dealing with them both. I've never had positive experiences with RCMP and tell them. Everyone thinks I'm like this huge cop fan. I really like Dean Lucas Handler. So we've met, um, he's the head of the Nanaimo RCMP canine unit, mm-hmm. um, Dean Muir. And we, yeah, they're all so committed to Lisa. We've met a few members of the team. And like, um, 
at the March last year, Marcus came, the current head of the RCMP came, Lisa Fletcher, um, Dean Lear came for a bit with Luca, but Luca couldn't come out of the truck because that was like one of the hottest days. But yeah, so we think they take it seriously and work hard now. But I don't think it was when Lisa went missing and for quite a few years. No, like everything that I found, uh, especially yeah. what Joanne told uh, the Native Women's Association in yeah. that article that uh, really informed a lot of this podcast, um, it just seemed like the, the cops were bothered by uh, another missing person, yeah. you know? Yeah, and it was. That's a story that Indigenous folks have heard a lot. And so oh. it there's a lot of resentment that comes along with that when working with police and, and mistrust as a result of that. Huge. I can agree more with you. So as an advocate, I also talk to a lot of other families and then become friends with them. And that's the most common thing. And actually, even non-Indigenous people now, I've met a lot of people, like just missing people in general, um, mm. say if the person was Caucasian, but into drugs. Um, it's just kind of crazy how sometimes people are generalized and the cops right. make their own opinions, I guess, right. on the Morris podcast. Uh, I think it was a cop who talked about, like, the biases that they can come in having, or maybe as a criminologist, I can't remember. Right. And I think they had a lot of that when Lisa went first went missing. And um, I kind of talked to, to Marcus, but Laura asked him, and he doesn't think it had anything to do with it. So we haven't really addressed it with the RCMP. But no, Marcus and Haley, like, we talked to them so much over the last couple of years. And yeah, they're both awesome. I have no complaints. They care about Lisa and they're trying hard, even though they're so overworked with other active files. It's coming up on the 20th anniversary of Lisa's disappearance. Are you folks planning anything special for that? So, yes, we are. And I will have to check the date, but I think it'll be on the Sunday. We're doing it on the Sunday, so I think it's the 26th or 27th. Mm-hmm. And we're going to do our annual march, but this year we might not meet at the police station. So usually we meet at the police station and we march down to Mafia Sutton Park. That was the waterfront that Lisa loved. And yep. we usually use the pavilion and sometimes we have speakers, butterflies, and spirit have performed a few times. But yeah, we're going to do our annual event. Because it's the 20th year, we're just working on it right now, and we want to try to make it a bit more different and special. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we're, so we actually have a few events this year. So the first one we'll be doing would be um, May 5th is Lisa's birthday, so she would have been 41, and she was a vegetarian. Yep. So for the month of May, we're doing Meatless May. Meatless May. Where we're, yeah, Um I was going to do the week, and Laura's like, let's do the month. So for the month of May, no, we're not going to eat meat. So it'll be easy for me because I'm vegan. <laughs> but um, <Over> there. <laughs> we have a little um, private group that you can join if you want to take part. And I think the link is posted in Lisa's group, and we'll post recipes. And we're just going to, like, encourage each other. If you want to post photos of your meal, you can do that. It'll be similar to 40 Days of Fitness. Mm-hmm. which we did the year before. So we had a little private group. People would um, 
cheer each other on, post like what you did for fitness, post photos you saw. So we want to have the same idea for Meet With Me. Just keep everyone engaged, and that's a positive thing. Mm-hmm. And then on May 5th, on Lisa's birthday, last year we started We Stand for Lisa. So Carol Ann thought of it. So what we do is we make our signs and we pick a spot and we stand for an hour with our signs to honor Lisa on her birthday and to raise awareness. Great. And then the next one after that is her March, which I will post the info in the group in the next few days about that. And then after the March on June 30th, that's when she went missing. We do lights on for Lisa. So I think this is the third year we're doing it. A group member thought of it. So what we do is we ask everyone to put a porch light on, um, any kind of lights, candle, um, any of that. And then you have posted in Lisa's group and we want to light up her group to light Lisa's way home. So those are the events we're doing this year to honor her. And we also usually do something on Joanne's birthday. Yeah, I can't great. think of the date right now. So we do a little <laughs> get together then and we stand on Pearson Bridge and um, Laura actually bought me a Lisa banner. So I hang that up. So yeah, that's what we do every year to raise awareness now. So if anybody else wants to get involved, uh, obviously joining your Lisa Marie Young Facebook group is one way. Uh, what are other ways that people can get involved to assist with advocating for Lisa? Um, I think the main way we get the public involved is to share our post from Lisa Group. And if you're comfortable to reach out to me and give me your address, and then I can send you Lisa cards. But it's mainly just through the group, or you can contact me personally on my personal Facebook page. Great, and you're easy to find. That's Cindy Hall, C-Y-N-D-Y-H-A-L-L. I want to thank you for coming on to Dark Poutine today and having this conversation with me. I know it's tough and it's an emotional thing for you to have this conversation over and over again, but I really appreciate, uh, and I'm sure the listeners do, all the work that you do for Lisa in advocating for her case to be solved and to help to bring her home. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. I really enjoy your podcast because it's so victim focused. So I was, I don't know if excited is the right word, but I was excited to do this interview. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And we'll talk more. I'm sure this, this will be one of many conversations, I think. I agree. Thank you again to Cindy Hall for taking the time to speak to me at a very busy time media-wise for her. Cindy continues to be one of the greatest advocates in helping to bring Lisa home. You can join Cindy and others, including me, on the Facebook group dedicated to Lisa Marie Young. Someone, possibly one of you listening to this podcast, knows exactly what happened to Lisa Marie Young. Police are looking for someone courageous enough to go on record and tell them what you know. If you have any tips or information regarding Lisa, please call Corporal Marcus Muntner directly at 250-754-2345. When she went missing, Lisa Marie Young was 21 years old. She was 5 foot 4 inches tall, 163 centimeters. She weighed 115 pounds, 52 kilograms. She had long, dark brown hair, brown eyes. 
Lisa has a tattoo of a band of flowers with a heart in the middle that circles her upper right arm. She was wearing a black skirt, black top, black high boots, and a silver hoop necklace. If you're looking for more on Lisa's story, it has been told masterfully on a couple of other podcasts, including Case File, a personal favorite, and more recently on Island Crime, a detailed multi-episode deep dive series called Where's Lisa? by Laura Palmer, mentioned earlier by Cindy Hall. Palmer's latest series is another interesting one for Dark Poutine listeners. It involves the case of longtime missing toddler Michael Dunahy, whose story was told in Dark Poutine, episode 55. Lisa's case is one of the many included in the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit People cases here in Canada. After many calls for an inquiry into the violence against these MMIWG2S people, in December of 2015, the Government of Canada announced the beginning of the process leading to a public inquiry into these cases. Over the ensuing years, ending in 2019, there were 2,386 total participants in the truth-gathering process that involved 15 community hearings at taking place in various regions across the country. 1,484 family members and survivors provided testimony and another 819 individuals shared through artistic expressions. In nine Knowledge Keeper expert and institutional hearings, 83 experts, knowledge keepers, and officials provided testimony. Out of that inquiry came a massive list of recommendations and talks about later which branches of government should be accountable for implementing each one of the recommendations. Part 1 of the recommendations address immediate and concrete activities. The full seven recommendations in Part 1 are 1. The need for a national inquiry into violence against Indigenous women and girls. 2. The need for a federally coordinated, cross-jurisdictional national action plan to address violence against Indigenous women and girls. 3. The need for federal, provincial, and territorial governments to publicly acknowledge and condemn violence against Indigenous women and girls. 4. The need for public education and greater public awareness of violence against Indigenous women and girls. 5. The need for more frequent and accessible transportation services to be made available to Indigenous women. 6. The need to fully ratify and implement international human rights instruments. And seven, the need for compensation for family members and or a healing fund for survivors and families. Part two addresses the root causes for the disproportionate violence and the need for preventative action. Part three addresses failures of the justice system to respond to the disproportionate violence and the need for improved reactive measures. To read more about this report and its recommendations, please check out the links in the show notes for this episode. Are they, okay, the question is, are they actually implementing this stuff? Slowly but surely, or, things are being implemented, uh, but I think there needs to be more public uh, accountability as far as what's being implemented when and where. The, right. It's not reported on, Okay, you know? so it's sort of like... The, the whole truth and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. You have to go digging for it, it. But it's also like, well, it's kind of been truth-ish and reconciliation light. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 So yeah, if you want to know news about this, you have to dig you about gotta, it. You gotta yeah. Dig, yeah. And it, it should be, you know, something that we 
we hear about yeah. more often. And that is it for Dark Poutine episode 206, MMIW Nanaimo Girl Gone, Lisa Marie Young. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Here's our first voicemail. Hey, y'all. My name is Taylor from Athens, Georgia. Um, I was going on a walk yesterday in the woods, which is probably the first no-no, but I was listening to the podcast and I wanted to call in because I thought of something funny. And then all of a sudden, like 20 gunshots went off and I thought, well, if I die on the voicemail recording, it will leave a really good story for an away game. (laughs) Um, Thankfully, I didn't die and I actually called the wrong number and probably would have died to people who were trying to steal my social security number. Um, anyways, I appreciate what you guys do. And I wish I could have that Southern draw for you, Mike, but fortunately I live just a little bit too inner city for that. <laughs> um, my funny thought was if you have the run, you can go make a soup in your toque. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> go make a soup in your toque. Oh, that's hilarious. Oh, that's really gross. A soup in your toque. Go make a soup in your toque. Oh, you'd have to have it really knit tightly for it not to leak. Right. It would be really yucky. Yeah. Please don't become a away game. Yeah, right? <laughs> we don't want you to. You Tw- sound lovely. <laughs> 20 gunshots is like, wow. Well, you you did your southern draw a little bit, and we could hear just a tiny hint of it in there. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting how the closer you get to an urban place, the more generic your accent becomes. Okay. Well, generic in regard to the area that you're from. Yeah. Like in Halifax, you have a more generic Nova Scotian accent, whereas if you go out further... It becomes more regional. Okay. Yeah, and I think I think every place is kind of like that. Maybe. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Let's listen to another voicemail. Matthew's got the maybes today. Maybe. Ah, <laughs> oh, hey fellas, this is Great Big Pete calling from Ottawa. Listen, I just listened to your episode about Nathan Cirillo, the corporal who was uh, gunned down by a terrorist in Ottawa a few years back. And I have to say that you guys covered that really, really well, and it was a really interesting uh, uh, podcast. One of the things that uh, you kind of skipped over a little bit and maybe didn't know about was that in Ottawa at the time, I was working in a government office on the other side of the river, and they locked down all government offices until, like, some of them were, like, until 9 o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, the whole downtown core was basically locked down, and it was kind of an intense situation. We had memos going out to people saying, you know, don't go near the windows and stuff like that. We didn't know if there was an active shooter. It was really scary. And in fact, that morning, I got a text message from a friend saying, holy fucking shit, are you okay, man? And I responded in all caps, holy fucking shit, I'm fine, thank you. (laughs) And then they didn't say anything but uh, sent me the link to the news article about the developing stuff and I was like, oh crap, there's a live shooter, active shooter in the city. Anywho, 
uh, I just thought I'd call to say that you guys did a great job representing that, and I just wanted to give you that little input from somebody who was in town that day working in the government, and uh, what we did was pretty spooky. Anywho, uh, I want you to go shit in your hats and have a nice day. I think you could say those two things together. All right, bye. So it, it sounded like he was had people cheering behind him, first of all. Which is he has a great voice. He I, had a very good voice. I think I to should call worry him. about my job here. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh well. Uh, you know, but Big Pete, thank you for your voicemail. Thank that was you, interesting. Uh, yeah. I did kind of skip over that uh, tidbit. I was aware that all federal institutions or federal offices had been locked down that day, and mm. and yeah, people had to stay inside their offices for hours because they weren't sure whether somebody else was out and about and wanting to hurt people mm. in federal. Uh, I'd love to shut down most federal offices, but <laughs> I'm not going to become an active shooter to do it. No, no. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I want to shut down all federal offices. No, but lots of them though. Lots of them. <laughs> there you go. Well, next up. I think we have one more voicemail, and uh, I'm not sure where in Ontario this person is calling from, but I bet you she's going to tell us. Well, hello, Mike and Matthew with a single T. My name is Carrie Valentine, and I'm originally from St. Catharines, Ontario, a beautiful little city that should be known for its wineries, fresh produce, and a rowing club in Port Dalhousie. Instead, it remains infamous as the home of the Barbie and Ken Killers. St. Catharines is a small enough city that there aren't too many degrees of separation, and my links to their crimes are the fact that my mother was a teacher at Kristen French's high school at the time of her murder, and in fact, my father was the founding principal of that same school. Another more tenuous link is that friends of a friend were actually the owners of the house in which they perpetrated their crimes. That home was eventually demolished for obvious reasons. Anyway, I've lived away from Canada for many years and currently reside in the Gold Coast in Queensland, Australia. I somehow stumbled across your podcast. I think it's related to the Patreon family because I listen to the David McWilliams podcast quite often. Anyway, I have become hooked and so I'm working my way through your back catalog. And uh, of course, I start with your most recent update and then I check out what I've missed. It's great fun hearing a couple of Canadian schmucks bring their unique perspective and empathy to true crime, and you likewise bring a nostalgic, albeit macabre, link to home for me. Now, I do seem to recall you promising to visit Australia should you be able to drum up sufficient numbers of Antipodean fans. So, you can add me to that tally and make sure you look around to the Gold Coast if you do make it here. I'd be hard-pressed to offer up a double-double or a Nanaimo bar, but I'm certain I could find you a suitable local replacement as refreshment. Keep up the great work and hope to see you here in Oz soon. And go take a poop in the book, and we'll talk soon. Bye. Well, thank you very much. That's really cool. I love to hear from Canadians who have moved elsewhere. Mm. Yeah, it's always great. Like, we're everywhere. We are we are infiltrating your your countries. <laughs> and and I'm glad she won't give us a double-double when we get there because Australia actually has the best coffee in the world. The Okay. Mm. The best coffee in the world is in Australia, yeah. says Matthew. 
It's true. There was, I think it's because there's a lot of Italian immigrants or something. Oh. But it's, um, no, the coffee in Australia, you can't get a better cup. Well, there you go. Yeah. I'd love some coffee in Australia. I just want to go to Let's Australia. Go. <laughs> I was talking to two Aussies on the ferry mm-hmm. uh, today. Oh, I have to do a shout out to Captain Elias. Okay. Because he's a new listener now. Hi, Elias. So Hi, he, Elias. He, he uh, ferries Steve around. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, well, let Elias know that uh, it's in the voicemail section of this episode know, that absolutely. you say. Yeah. That way he listens to the end. Right. <laughs> One download. Yay. Yeah. Let's go to Australia. Yeah. I haven't been to the Gold Coast. Yeah. I would like to see that place. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 327 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. Now on to Patreon. Uh, first up, actually only up, is Angela Ferguson. Thank you, Angela, Thank for you, being Angela. our patron. And where is Angela from? Seville. Seville in Spain. In Spain. And the jewel of Andalusia. Ah, the rain in Spain falls mainly on, on the, the plain. plain. Yes. Um, what does Angela do there in España? In Seville? Yeah. She's a barber. She's the, <laughs> She's the barber of Seville. <laughs> Figaro. I mop at your top. Remember the Bugs Bunny one? You're so next. (laughs) (laughs) I love me some Bugs Bunny. Do you? Yeah, Mel Blanc was actually a hero of mine, the guy who did uh, Bugs Bunny's voice and every other voice Mm. in Looney Tunes. That guy was a master. Just crazy. Amazing. Was he that good or is it just because we got used to him? I think he was that good. Yeah. (laughs) Jeez, Matthew. Tough crowd. We didn't have any donut money donors this week, but that's okay. You know, I only have to eat. <laughs> and I can't, you know, I can't survive on donuts. So maybe people are trying to send us a message. I don't know. Maybe we're going to rack up lots of Patreons next week. I doubt it. <laughs> uh, thank you to all our patrons and donut money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via P... Via PayPal. I said PayPal before. PayPal. Via PayPal. PayPal. Using our email address, darkteampodcast at gmail.com. Gmail. If you, don't, if you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of our website, please check out darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Don't forget, if you're going to CrimeCon... Las Vegas. In Las Vegas, come see Matthew and I. But first, get your ticket. And when you get your ticket at crimecon.com, use poutine at checkout. P-O-U-T-I-N-E. And it will save you 10% off your ticket. And you'll help the show because, hey, 
if we get enough people signing up using our code, we'll have some of our costs offset by CrimeCon. So please, please, please let people, let CrimeCon know that you love us. Please take the time to give Dark Patine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Before we leave, we have a promo for you to listen to. It's called Dealing Justice, and it's the original Justice Playing Cards podcast. Take a listen. It's a great show. 911, what's the nature of your emergency? Your world can change in the blink of an eye. He walked into the bedroom and you know that she had been murdered. So he's running up and down, screaming, Oh my God, someone called 911. There are two men killing a girl. I know my son, and he would not go that long without saying anything to anyone. Safety can be an illusion, and reality a nightmare. So how do you steal a person, a grown person? Unspeakable crimes can penetrate any small town, big family, pretty face, or innocent child. And in the wake of a loved one's murder or disappearance, there is nothing more cruel or desperate as silence. Why won't people talk about it? That's another thing. People don't want to talk about it around here. For the families of the missing and murdered, they gamble with their sanity as they lose hope in closure and settle for justice. That's where the cold case playing cards come in. In each episode of the Dealing Justice podcast, your hosts Jennifer Dubasek and Lori Jennings will spotlight one card from the cold case playing card deck. Hear the victim's story from the friends and family who knew them best. Her mom will never stop fighting until she finds out what happens to her daughter. Learn about the crime and help close the case. Welcome to Season 2. We're not just playing cards. We're dealing justice. And that's it for this week's episode. Until next time. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Buy you good ac- apples. What? Buy you good apples. You mean good eggs. Oh, yeah. Buy good eggs. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs>